This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. Yo, welcome back to another episode of Living Lean. Today, I'm joined by my man, Brian Borstein. Brian, thank you so much for being here, dude. I'm honored, man. Thanks for having me. Of course, dude. So for those who might not know, which again, like we said before this, is pretty unlikely. Break it down for us. Who is Brian in a nutshell? Uh, uh, Started training in uh, ninth grade to get better at basketball. Um, Followed mostly old school, like 1950s, 1960s style training up through uh, the early 2000s. Um, Ended up finding CrossFit in 2009 started a gym, got super into the competitive CrossFit scene for six or seven years, and then uh, created my brand, Evolve Training Systems, in 2017. And uh, it's a bit of a combo of a little bit of functional fitness from the CrossFit feel with some of the old style strength and conditioning from, from my original days and then combined with some new age evidence-based bodybuilding and physique style focus. I love it. Yeah. And one of the, one of the coolest things I've picked up from following you is you do have this kind of like the hybrid style of training, right? Like you said you started evolved in 2017, correct? Yep. And I think it's around then when I started, cause you're somebody I've learned a ton from, because I know like, for me before then, I was all like, okay, I'm on T Nation and I'm on bodybuilding.com and that's where I'm learning about programming. And I was never like in the CrossFit space or anything like that. It was all just like the bro shit, right? And for mm-hmm. like you, it was like all this stuff like, like moms, like what is this? This is crazy. <laughs> like all this shit, it's like, it's, it's dope. Like it makes your training so much more fun and exciting, but it's so much different. So that's, I think, one of my favorite things that I picked up from you. So how do you go about like programming this kind of hybrid style of training where you have kind of the best of both worlds, so to speak, as far as like CrossFit and bodybuilding go? Yeah, for sure. So I use um, something called metric-based movements. Um, I believe in consistent performance of exercises over time. Um, I'm not a huge fan of what CrossFit kind of termed as constantly varied or, uh, your bodybuilding audience may understand it more as the weeder principle of, right. uh, right. So wait, what, what's the name? What did he exactly call it? It was, um, do you remember the phrasing? The weeder principle of muscle confusion. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like so I don't really, the body. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I don't necessarily believe in that. I think that variance should be used as a tool. Um, and it should be used when progress stalls. Um, so that's kind of the basis of the way that I form my philosophy is, you know, picking one to three movements that are your base movements, your metric based movements. And these are going to be performed every week. Um, they don't always have to be performed for the exact same number of reps or anything like that. We want to incorporate a progressive model in there where we're increasing proximity to failure. We're increasing, um, the perceived difficulty, as I like to call it, of the movement week to week. Um, so reps are changing, loads are changing, things like that. So there is variance in that aspect. But I think that um, successful training depends on neural learning. And 
if you're constantly changing the exercises you're doing, then you're never actually getting good at performing any specific exercise. Um, so that's the basis of the programming. And then I understand that most people need some sort of variance in their training. Like, right. like for me, if some, if someone tells me, you know, these are your five movements and you're just going to go into the gym and perform these same movements for 12 straight weeks, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Right. Um, but most people, especially people that come from the CrossFit background, they don't vibe well with that philosophy. So that's where I've come up with these kind of like auxiliary movements or accessory movements, whatever you want to call it. And these movements are constantly varied week to week. Um, so we can still perform some compound movements as part of these like accessory movements. It just isn't going to be the movement that we did as part A or part B. So as an example, we might dumbbell bench press as one of our repeating movements in part A, but then still in part C, we could come and we could barbell bench, um, or we could do a number of other different chest variants, um, to add variety and, um, keep things interesting in that way. Okay. So as far as your metric-based movements, first, to your knowledge, are you the first person that used the term metric-based movements? Because that's something that I've said a shit ton and I know I've heard a ton, but I think you're the first person that I heard say that. I said it on Cody's podcast in 2017, right when I started Evolve. Okay. And then I've listened to a couple of podcasts of his since then where he's used that term as well. Okay. Um, I don't know if I coined that term we'll first or not, but, but I never heard anyone say it before I did. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So on the note of metric-based movements, so you, how often then, like, I know you said like when progress stalls, I've heard so many different things though, as far as like, okay, it's typically every four weeks it's smart to switch these up. I know for like me personally, if it's like a deadlift variation shit, we'll run that for like months straight what are your thoughts on that like is there a specific time frame like okay we've been running this back squat variation for six weeks time to switch it up or do you have like a time frame for that for one-on-one -on -one coaching i think it really does come down to when we begin to see progress stall or when we begin to see the client kind of just lose interest in the movement maybe right. just kind of be like oh i feel like i'm beating my head against a wall trying to back squat every every week um, but as like a general overview of the kind of the way I apply it to my generic programming, um, I like to try and hit three mesocycles with the same compound movements. I love it. Um, yeah, a mesocycle for me is usually four weeks. I just think that's the sweet spot for most people where I'd rather deload before it's too late, um, as opposed to using auto-regulated deloads, which I know are, are becoming popular too, but I don't necessarily trust people on my generic programming to know when they need to deload. Right. So I, I usually will program four week mesocycles uh, where like I kind of mentioned in the beginning where we're increasing perceived difficulty week to week. Um, and then the way the progression would work would be that when we jump into the second mesocycle, we would try and perform the movement with the loads and or rep targets that we had a week later in the prior mesocycle, meaning that if in week two, we used 105 pounds for squat, um, then we would try and use 105 pounds for squat in week one of the next mesocycle. Okay. Um, so we're just trying to jump a week ahead. And then um, that kind of allows things to stay fresh. And it's not like we're adding weight to the bar every week. It's not like, you know, we're approaching this failure point and then I'm expecting you to, to exceed your performance um, in that way, it's more like, you know, we stopped shy of failure in the first mesocycle at a certain point 
And then in the second mesocycle, we're also stopping shy of failure, but we're hoping that some adaptations occurred so that we can stop shy of failure with five pounds more on the bar. Okay. Okay. So no, I love it. That, that makes perfect sense. So something you mentioned there was deloads and deloads are something that I've heard a lot of different things on. Like I know some people in the industry only like to reduce volume, not intensity. Some people like to mostly reduce intensity. Um, what are your takes there? And like, when do you, cause you talked about auto-regulating deloads, like when do you, or what are signs to, for you, like with your one-on-one clients, that is for sure time to, okay, we need to deload. Or how do you say ahead of that? And I'm sorry, I think I just asked you 10 questions at the same time. <laughs> yeah, let's just talk about deloads in general. And uh, and you can you can let me know if I forgot anything, all right? So um, I personally don't enjoy dropping weight significantly when I deload. I feel like if I were to drop weight too much, it would almost feel like a burden to come back to heavier loading the right. next week. Yeah. So I tend to follow a deload model that runs like this. Um, I reduce volume by half. So if I was doing four sets of squats, I'll do two. Okay. Um, I reduce loading by about 10%. So if I was doing 100 pounds, I would reduce it to 90 pounds. And then I reduce reps by 20%. Okay. So to put that all together, if I was doing four sets of 100 pounds for 10 reps, I would do two sets of 90 pounds for eight reps. Okay. And do you apply that same concept then to your accessory movements also, or just metric-based movements? I almost always will actually cut out accessory movements oh, in really? a deload week. I mean, eh, let, let's just say not always, but um, a lot of time, I'll, mm, that's actually not even true. Um, in my personal training, I don't really have accessory movements. So okay. I have like my, you know, three to four exercises that I do in a day and I'll just follow that exact same model that I laid out for all of those movements in the way that it applies to my generic programs where I do include those accessory movements. I follow a similar model. Yeah. Um, what I usually do in my programs is I write, you know, two sets of 10 to 12 with a weight that you could perform 20 reps with. Okay. Okay. Something like that. So let's get into that a bit then. So your personal training because you do have a lot of, I'm in the, I follow the Evolve Training, or I've subscribed to the Evolve Training Physique program, right? Yep. And there you have a lot of, which I love it, like we have a lot of pump work also. That's not how you train then? At least not. Um, it depends on the focus of my cycle. So what I try to do with all the Evolve programs is I try to follow a macro vision of what a year of training would look like. Okay. And so when you say that there's pump work, um, those are portions of the training year. Right. Um, so the way that I try to look at it is if we have 12 months of training, we'll have about a three to four month hypertrophy block, uh, where we're doing more straight sets and less of like the supersets, drop sets, giant sets, less trying to create a pump, right. Uh, more just trying to work within the six to 20 rep range and a pump is a side effect of that. Right. Um, then I like to have a strength phase somewhere in there. Usually the strength phase is dictated by when I feel like, um, like there's a need to resensitize to hypertrophy. Okay. Um, cause I think eventually, you know, we all reach a point in our training where we're just kind of doing these, this, this hypertrophy focus. And, you know, we go into the gym and we're like, Oh, my pumps aren't as good as they were. And, you know, 
I just don't feel like the stimulus is, is as strong as it could be. Right. So to me, that's usually a good kind of self-awareness sign of maybe we need to resensitize to some hypertrophy work. And uh, that's where I am in my training right now. So I have just done hypertrophy for the last almost six months. It's been two different uh, three-month hypertrophy blocks. Okay. Um, so now I'm about to jump into a strength block and I plan this ahead of time to coordinate with the birth of my second child, which is coming in a week or two. Oh, hey, congrats. Um, yeah, thanks, man. So I think it makes sense, especially when you, when you know these things ahead of time, um, to plan a strength cycle during that time. So building up my hypertrophy, 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 and then dropping to this strength cycle, I feel like what will happen is I'll come back from this strength cycle and A, I'll be super motivated to hit hypertrophy work. Right. B, I'll probably be able to get a massive pump with significantly less volume, which so, is great because right now my volume is so high because it's right. been like six months of this that just to get a massive pump, I need, I need more work than I think I should need, right? Right. So after this strength block, I hope to come back and you know I'll hit two or three sets and be able to get a pump that I would need five sets for, something like that. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the purpose of the resensitization. And then after the strength cycle, I think is actually the perfect time to jump into massive hypertrophy block where we're doing a lot of that, like pump work, um, things like that, that are going to flush the body, flood the body with a bunch of nutrients and blood flow. Um, so, I mean, you just kind of have to look at the year like that and use your strength cycles, um, sparingly unless your goal is is strength but right. definitely sparingly if your goal is hypertrophy um and more as a tool to resensitize for hypertrophy okay and i'm glad you brought this up because this is actually something that i wrote down i wanted to ask you about if you thought that the idea of like resensitization is important mm -hmm. because i know it's still kind of uh not necessarily like super proven in the literature, but you do hear a lot of people talk about it i know like steve hall has like, what they call a primer phase so for you like writing out or if you were going to program a recent damn i cannot say that word we all know what i'm trying to say phase <laughs> yeah. how would you like go about that so say you're dropping that into evolved training systems like what are your basic parameters for okay this is what we're going to do to resensitize you there i said it for hypertrophy totally yeah so we actually did a uh, strength phase in the evolve program um it started august 26th and uh, that's still available on the members area for anyone. So if you wanted to go back and ever implement that into your training, you do have access to that right now. Um, but the way, the principles that I kind of um, try to apply are, um, I like to reduce reps significantly because more than anything, reps are, are the thing that are going to cause you to need to resensitize like sets of 10 to 20 um, are, you know, are hypertrophy reps. So A, reps stay generally below 10. Uh, 12 on some movements. Like I usually don't have a lateral raise for like eight reps in there or anything like that. Right. Um, volume needs to drop as well. Um, and I think that in general, it makes sense to stick to more compound movements because if the whole point is to resensitize, then you don't want to be performing a bunch of hypertrophy style movements. Um, if you can take those out and just focus on your big compounds for a number of weeks in a row, then, uh, then when you come back to doing these more bodybuilding style movements, you sure your body should be a little bit more responsive to them. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then that's typically like how long of the time frame do you like to put that for? I think four to six weeks is, is probably pretty solid. 
Um, that's the way Steve runs his, his primer phases. And I've talked with him about, about kind of the way that he approaches those two. And, um, I've had him and, and Dr. Mike influence a bit of my thought on, okay. on strength or maintenance phases or whatever you want to call them. I don't really like to, to think of it as a maintenance phase because I actually do think you can make strides forward in your strength during those right. periods, especially because you haven't been training with like three to eight rep range too much. Right. Um, I think that at least for me, you know, heading into the strength phase now, um, I fully intend to be able to get stronger during it, especially given that volume is lower, uh, fatigue will be lower. And, uh, and I should be able to have a little bit more energy and be able to put some of those calories that I'm eating toward, uh, toward gaining a little bit more. Okay. Dope. I love it. I love it. And again, it sounds like that's coming at a perfect time. So right now I know in evolved, you're entering like a power building phase, right? Which in that case, we kind of have strength and a hypertrophy simultaneously. So with that, are like the rules any different or like, how do you, because I'm, because right now we're talking about them more as like, okay, we have strength phases and we have hypertrophy phases, but yep. this is kind of the two mesh together, right? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm actually really intrigued to see how this all goes. I'm too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I, uh, I don't know that, you know, when you look at like evidence-based, I think that evidence-based often separates these two into strength or hypertrophy. Like right. you don't really see too many studies done being like, what happens if I do like two to three reps on my squats, but then I do 12 to 20 reps on leg extensions or something right. like that? Like, do the signals get confused or how does the body, like, is the body going to be more likely to adapt to strength than it is to hypertrophy or, or how does it play out? Right? right. So I like perused the literature and I was like, where can I find studies on this? And I couldn't really find much. Okay. So what I did is I used intuition and the studies that I did have available. And uh, in the blog that I wrote about this power building phase, I noted that I think it makes more sense to have the hypertrophy work be on the super far extreme side of the rep range, like the much higher rep range, right. versus, um, versus trying to find that middle area. Okay. Um, so instead of doing like, you know, two to three reps on back squat and then hitting eight to 12s, which is your typical like hypertrophy zone or whatever, right. I think extending that out to like 15 to 30 reps is going to keep signals from getting crossed a little bit more. Um, and I, I can only put out what I believe will work and, uh, I'm excited to see how everybody kind of implements it and, and what the feedback is at the end of the cycle as to, to a, whether the body seemed to prioritize strength or hypertrophy more, um, whether it seemed to cross signals, whether it was maybe potentially difficult to, to amp, to get amped up for for heavy sets or maybe it was difficult to get amped up for high rep sets um i'm just curious on any and all feedback that people have from this cycle okay okay that's yeah no that's super interesting and i actually read that blog and i was very so for you basically where when you program this it's pretty much just like one to two strength movements to start the day right yep and in the blog you said like we're sending like the we're sending the strength signal and then very quickly we want to like shift hypertrophy work or like break down like what is a day like programming a day of power building like what is that like like our strength like okay we're gonna do this many strength movements versus we need to make sure we're not doing too much of this to get in before we get into hypertrophy yeah so my theory on this as I kind of alluded to in the blog is that 
we don't want to overload the body with too much central nervous system signaling um, via like the low rep, uh, heavy, heavy weights. Okay. So whereas, you know, in a typical, a typical strength training program, you'd usually see something like five by five or five, three, one, or um, any of these kind of like higher volume, low rep approaches. You see a lot of like, okay, five sets of three with the same weight or three sets of five with the same weight, five sets of five. Uh, six sets of two, something like that. And my concern or my theory was that if we're doing all of this, all of this dedicated work with these heavy loads that early in the session, it's going to fatigue central nervous system to a point that it probably won't be able to respond as effectively when we switch over to the hypertrophy work. Right. So what I'm trying to do with this cycle is have us do one top set for each of the strength movements, um, where that is kind of like our, our metric based set. Right. And then as you saw in the programming, there's a number of different back offsets that follow that at percentages. And those back offsets at percentages are, are with a many IRR, many RIR, uh, reps in reserve. So if I think initially it was, uh, work to a top set of three on a squat, and then reduce the weight to 85% of the top set and do sets of two. So I would think that somebody doing those sets of two as their back offsets could probably do sets of six, seven, maybe even eight reps. Okay. So therefore, the signaling that's occurring is more about neural learning. It's about right. becoming better at performing a squat on those back offsets than it is about signaling anything along the lines of like, we're going to get stronger. Right. So you're um, purposely avoiding like the quote unquote effective rep range basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you want to go into the effective reps thing, yeah, it's, it's just shy of effective reps. Um, but neural learning is super important. And when it comes to strength work, I actually think effective reps are probably less important in strength work because of the neural learning aspect and probably more important in the hypertrophy aspect, just because you want that, that stimulus, uh, closer to failure. Right. And so that's kind of your thinking behind why, why like okay it's okay that we're not like you're not smashing yourself with crazy heavy weight and you're not taking the super close failure because the goal with these sets is to get strong yeah for sure and i mean that first set that you're doing is still the one that really is signaling the strength and creating the adaptations and then the back offsets are more about neural learning and becoming better at performing movement so that you can then implement those improvements in technique and efficiency into that heavier set the following week Okay. Okay. And then just by my manipulating intensity so much, like being loaded with like your strength work and then your hypertrophy work, you're just sending two drastically different signals with like your hypertrophy work is so much lighter. Yeah. And then that's kind of signaling to sending two different signals that we're hoping your body can adapt to simultaneously. Right. Yeah. And we'll see, man. Like, you know, this, this, that's dope, though. I, <laughs> I love it. like, it's, yeah, it's like experimenting, right? Like generally I, I it super was, interesting because I haven't really seen a program like this before, but I love it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to work. Like, I mean, I love putting this stuff out here and I love that, that people are willing to, to kind of take my vision of things and then run with it because I, I do put a ton of thought into it and I, I write it in a way that I think that I think will work. Right. Um, but like, like you said, it hasn't really been written this way before, but, but that's part of like, you know, you, as a coach, you, you don't want to just copy what other people have done. You kind of want right. to blaze your own path and create new ways of doing things like if Wendler never put together five three one then we would just always do five by five you know what I mean like somebody has to come up with new ideas right okay (laughs) no that's dope that's dope I love it so another thing I wanted to ask you about is as anybody that's ever read anything about 
hypertrophy or training at all like progressive overload is the thing right like you have to be constantly like which in most cases we think of as like adding weight to the bar mm-hmm. so like when you're coaching people when you talk people through this like how do you like because obviously like when you get to the point where we are especially the point where you are with jack dude you're super advanced like how do you gauge and obviously you can't just add weight to the bar every single week and damn i'm sorry i'm doing a terrible job asking questions that aren't like you're cool forever but how do you gauge overload like in your situation Uh, yeah so um i kind of alluded to it in the beginning but when i set up these like four week mesocycles i like to use the term perceived difficulty as as a way of kind of creating this progressive overload so so overload doesn't I don't think that people should think about progressive overload as just adding weight to the bar because I think that's short-sighted. And I think that it's irrelevant for anybody that's been training more than six months. Okay. Um, So there are are three different ways that we can progressively overload, right? In my mind, we can progressively overload load, um, which is the most common. We can add weight to the bar. We can progressively overload proximity to failure. Um, so we could start at three or four reps shy of failure on a movement, and then we either add weight or load. Uh, uh, we add, uh, sorry, we either add reps or load the the next week to get us a little bit closer to failure, or we can add sets. Um, I'm not as big of a fan of adding sets because I think that that increases volume so drastically that it almost can become like a runaway train, and and you don't it, it becomes difficult to manage at what point you're doing too many sets. Right. Um, but I do really like using proximity to failure and load to manipulate perceived difficulty. So the way that that works on like a grander scale, because it's impossible for somebody like you said at our level to add five pounds to the bar every week is using that RIR, that reps in reserve, that proximity to failure, um, and using that to manipulate perceived difficulty. So if in week one of a mesocycle, I'm leaving three reps in reserve, then I want to either add load or reps so that in week two, I'm leaving two to three reps in reserve. And then in the following week, I'm leaving one to two reps in reserve. And then in the final week before deload, maybe we're working to failure or we're just shy of failure. Um, And therefore, that process is what is overloading. So while we might not necessarily be getting stronger, like we might not be like, oh, I was benching 225 times 10 to failure. And then the next week I'm going to do 230 times 10 to failure and then 235 times 10 to failure, which would be be sick, but not realistic. Um, So then we deload, we flush the fatigue. And this is what I was saying earlier about when I come back to week one in my second mesocycle, I'm now going to attempt to use the week two reps and load targets. Okay. Okay. And that's how my overload occurs. So it almost occurs in four to five week overloading segments versus being week to week. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. sense. And so basically like, do you feel like then just, this is kind of a self-explanatory question, but like, as you get further, the further you progress, like you have to look at it as more like month to month, we're creating overload as opposed to like day to day and then week to week. And then it just time frames get longer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and at some point, you know, like there are movements where I, I add five pounds to the bar in a year. Okay. Um, and that's like, for me, that's kind of like a win because there are also movements where I'm not adding any weight to the bar 
And then there are movements where I'm adding 10, 20 pounds to the bar. Um, one thing that I've really, really been trying to do as I audit my own training is making sure that movement efficiency um is just just perfect i mean literally like i want people to look at my movement and be like dude you move so perfectly like i literally have nothing i could tell you to do better than that right and um as an example of this stiff-legged deadlift has become one of my just like i love stiff-legged deadlifts it's dear to my heart i romanticize the shit out of it (laughs) um so i want to perform it perfectly like anything else and uh, a couple months ago, I worked up to 365 for eight. Damn. And uh, that's with like a dead stop on the ground, a three-second negative, um, making sure my reps are just so clean. Right. And I go back and I watch this video, and I think there's ways to improve. So I take it out of my programming for a couple months, and I know when I come back to it down the road, that I'm not going to go right to 365 right? because I have to relearn movement patterns and stuff like that. But that's a perfect opportunity for me to, to audit the effectiveness of my movement. So what I'm doing as I add it back into my cycle now is I'm actually going to drop the weight all the way back to like somewhere between 225 and 275. Okay. Um, and I'm also going to perform it pre-exhausted. Okay. So I'm going to, to do leg curls first. I'm going to hit three or four sets of leg curls. And hopefully the idea is that this is going to increase my ability to connect with my hamstrings and it will decrease the need for me to go quite as heavy as 365. Okay. So to someone from the outside, it might look like Brian's going backwards. Why he was doing 365 for eight, you know, six months ago. Why is he now using 265 for six or something like that well now it's pre-exhausted and now i'm trying to perform the movement in a manner that more accentuates the lengthening and the flexion that occurs within the hips and the hamstrings and stuff like that um so i think that especially when we're looking at physique style training and not strength training people need to become less concerned with the amount of load that they have on the bar and they need to audit their training in a manner that allows them to perform reps most effectively, even if that means reducing load sometimes to increase effectiveness. Okay. Okay. And that's, that's, I love that because that's something I've definitely experienced in my own training. Like for the longest time, when I first actually started studying training, it's like, okay, volume is the most important thing. So it's like, okay, I'm going to throw 135 on the bar do like, Oh shit, I just hit 13,000 pounds of volume. Why are my legs right. going? Right. And then we get all these different concepts. So how important then for hypertrophy do you think the mind-muscle connection is? Uh, pretty important. I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's like, there's, it's really difficult to, to try and put some sort of number to that. Right. And I know it's hard um, to say, like, this is yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just important. Um, like, like if you, if you were doing stiff legged deadlifts and you were literally just going down and standing up and going down and standing up, there's going to be a certain amount of stimulus that is applied to your hamstrings. And then there's probably going to be a shit ton of stimulus that's applied to your erectors and, and your back muscles. Um, I think that the, where mind muscle connection is important is in 
allowing movements to target an area that you, that, that you want them to target, especially when it comes to compound movements. Um, but I don't think that people should prioritize my muscle connection necessarily at the expense of load. Okay. Um, and let me clarify what I mean by that. I think that there's, there's utility for both. Um, I think that somebody that struggles with mind muscle connection, but understands the importance of load might be really benefited by doing one really heavy set where they're literally just trying not to break in half okay. and they're just, they're just accumulating reps and they're losing heavy loads and they're trying to progress week to week. Um, and you know, obviously we're not going to round our back and use shitty form, but maybe mind muscle connection isn't the focus of that set. Right. Um, but then you can back the weight off 30, 40%. You can increase the rep range a little bit. And then I think that these reps, mind muscle connection becomes extremely important. Okay. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Okay. Dope. Dope. So as far as like the volume versus intensity, which I know like at this point, this debate might be kind of played <laughs> out, <laughs> but recently I've seen a lot of stuff and I know Paul Carter had a big influence on you, right? Uh, Paul Carter was a huge influence in my early days. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I love it. So like Paul Carter, John Meadows, I know both guys that have talked a lot about like intensity is much more important and like intention is much more important than overall volume, which I think we can all kind of agree on. But like, as far as like intensity, like, okay, we need to, what we've just talked about, like create tension at specific muscles, as opposed to like adding more and more volume, like which... I kind of lost myself in my own question here, but it sounds like you lean more towards like your in, the intensity is more important than like pushing overall volume. Correct. I think there needs to be a base level of volume that's sufficient for you to grow as an individual. Okay. And once you have established kind of what your volume landmarks are and okay. where you perform best, then intensity is is very important too um the the intent of the movement i think is is the word you used intent mm-hmm. um and i think that intensity is part of intent uh for sure but i think that intensity gets kind of confused oftentimes because i think the way you're using it is more to define your proximity to failure right right, right. it's not being used as like a percentage of one rm which is like the official weightlifting definition of intensity right. Um, so as it relates to like proximity to failure, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important, but I think it's, it's a tool in the process, just like volume is. Um, and as I kind of, you know, mentioned earlier is the way that I build mesocycles out where I'm trying to increase perceived difficulty week to week. Intensity is a massive aspect of perceived difficulty. So in my mind, it's one of the variables that we can overload. We can start with less intensity, less proximity to failure, and then over the course of the mesocycle, as our perceived difficulty increases, as does our intensity or proximity to failure. Okay. Okay. No, dope. That that makes sense. And I like I've never heard of like laid out like that, like find your volume landmarks first, but that makes sense. And I, I like that model a lot. Okay. Dope. Yeah, well, I mean, volume landmarks change over time too. So so I think initially finding your volume landmarks is important. Especially mm-hmm. like maybe when you get to intermediate level, volume right. landmarks probably not so important as a beginner. As a beginner, I think just being in the gym and and making reps and getting better at performing movements is is the holy grail. Um, and then you'll reach a point where progress doesn't occur week to week like it was when you were a beginner. And at that point, I think you need to audit your training in the sense of 
you know, establishing uh, what your volume landmarks are. Um, in my career or my 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 training career, um, I think I I never really knew what my volume landmarks were until a couple years ago, where I never even really paid much attention to it. I just kind of went into the gym, and I had that typical CrossFit mindset of the more you can do, the better, because mm -hmm. CrossFit is such a skill based sport. Um, and then in my early days before CrossFit, I was, I was just trying to get strong, man. Everything was like five by five or three by eight. And I never really thought about volume or anything at that point. It was more like you were saying, like Paul Carter was an influence of mine and I just tried to get stronger and add weight to the bar whenever I could. Um, and I was only doing compound movements. So it almost was irrelevant whether I had volume landmarks or not because I was literally doing six different compound movements and I was just trying to get stronger on them. Okay. Okay. And then with a, so like when you go through a resensitize, oh, fuck that word is killing me. <laughs> when you go through a resensitization phase and so then like at that point, do you think your volume landmarks like decrease slightly? Because then we're saying like, when we go back to hypertrophy, we can get the same response with less volume, right? Yeah, totally. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think that's like actually the whole purpose of the resensitization phase is that you're able to then get a similar level of stimulus, um, in your target muscles with less volume. Okay. Uh, but over the course of, so like a deload is like a mini resensitization phase, right? Right. So week one after a deload, you can probably get sore and get a pretty solid stimulus without having to do as much volume as you did the week before the deload week. Right. Um, and so a resensitization phase to me is just like a deload on steroids. So maybe you get a little bit longer of a period of time while you can respond with lower volumes, but eventually your body's going to, going to remember what it is, where it's been. And I think in a matter of weeks, you're probably going to be more or less right back where you were. Okay. Okay. So your volume landmarks are essentially always kind of a moving target depending on what you've been doing basically like the last couple months. Yeah, for sure. Based on what you've been doing the last couple months. And even like, as an example, if you specialize in a body part and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a cycle now where I'm going to focus on delts and quads or something, and I'm right. going to put everything else on maintenance level. Then I think that at the end of that specialization cycle, your volume landmarks for your, for your quads and your delts are going to be really fucking high right. because you've just been training them with more volume than they've ever been used to. Um, whereas the, the volume landmarks for the body parts that you put on maintenance are probably going to respond with less volume than you're used to. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Dope. So when you're going into programming a training block for someone, what are like, if anything, what are like, these are the things that I want to make sure these are the key components that I always put into like a block that I'm programming. Always metric based movements. Okay. Never anything constantly varied all the time. Um, always metric based movements that are primarily focused on compound movements. Um, and, uh, Beyond that, just progressing perceived difficulty week to week. I think that the progression of perceived difficulty is almost like become a, a staple in my training now. Like I couldn't imagine designing at least a hypertrophy cycle um, without some sort of perceived difficulty increase uh, week to week. Okay. So do you like then like 
an increase or a decrease in RIR or like, okay, we're going to keep it the same IR, R, wait, damn, I just lost myself again. We're going to keep the same RIR, but we're trying to just strictly increase like add sets, but it's, you're like, you're more prefer like increase in RIR or, or decrease in RIR or decreasing RIR. Yeah. Um, so what I really like about the, the decreasing RIR approach is that it almost tells you when it's time to deload. Okay. Um, if you ever like want to auto-regulate your deloads, like using RIR is almost a necessity because you essentially will just start at a point. It doesn't really matter where it starts. You can start it, fuck, you can start at two reps RIR if you want. You're just probably going to hit failure sooner, which is going to tell you to deload sooner. Right. Um, so that's kind of why I like to start at like three or four, probably three RIR. Um, because I feel like starting at three RIR allows me to go for about four to five weeks of progressively adding load or reps to the bar um, until I reach a point where I fail. And okay. then that point where, where I'm reaching failure is basically like, okay, dude, you've reached failure. Let's, let's deload and do this thing all over again. This time we'll try and start at like a higher point. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to adding sets and I do think that there are times to add sets. Um, for example, not all movements progress RIR at the exact same rate. Right. So, um, so at some point, you know, we might be, uh, oh shit, my squats are, are at zero RIR, uh, but I still have two IR, RIR left on my bench press. Okay. Um, so I think at that point, it might make sense to stop shy of actually failing on squats and maybe you add an extra set in there. So now we're increasing volume as a means of overload without having to actually hit failure. And then that allows the cycle to extend a little bit further for the movements that still have RIR to go. Okay. Okay. Dope. That, that makes a lot of sense. So who are you like, who are you learning from or what keeps you excited about this shit? Because like one of the things I love about following you is it seems like you're always super hyped up about just like having fun with your training. Yeah. I mean, I just love trying new shit. Um, so I definitely get a lot of influence from the main, you know, evidence-based crew, the, the Dr. Mike, the Eric Helms, 3DMJ crew, um, James Krieger, Brad Schoenfeld, uh, all those guys doing the studies. Um, but, you know, what's really excited me recently is um, just digging through old, or not even old, but more current evidence-based um, literature. Okay. And, you know, I subscribe to Weightology, which is James Krieger's right. uh, research review. And, uh, and man, he's just got so much information in there. So, so I have these ideas and, and I'll like write down ideas in, in my notes app on my phone and I'll be like, Oh, I really want to try this. Let me go check <laughs> James Krieger's site and see if there's like any literature on this. Right. And then I'll go dig through that. And I'll read what he has to write. And then he always links in his, in his research reviews. He's like, you might be interested in seeing this study where this happened and it relates to this. And I'm like, just going down the rabbit hole, like clicking on links and reading research reviews. And, um, and as I read this stuff, it's like, it literally is like a kid in a candy store, man. It's, it's, uh, it's cool that you notice that because for me, I find it amazing that after 20 plus years of training that I can still get giddy and excited about this stuff. Um, <laughs> I love and, it. And I, th I think it's super cool, man. I just like, I love trying new stuff. I love putting stuff out that, that people want to do. Um, like, you know, circling back to the power building cycle, it's, it's based in what I think is going to work based on the science that I've read, but 
fuck, man, you guys are, are my, are my guinea pigs just telling me whether it works or not. And then, you know, next year when I put out my next power building cycle, maybe I can tweak some things and use the feedback y'all provide and put out something a little bit better. Dude, that's dope. And again, same thing to me. That was so cool when you said that. It's like literally like this shit that you've like inferred from everything you've learned, but you're literally just experimenting with this. But no, I love it. And that's one thing I really appreciate you, man. Like literally just going into the evolved and like looking through the training programs. It's like, shit, this gets me so stoked to like write programs. <laughs> so I love it. And I really appreciate it for that, dude. But anyways, cool. man, I want to be super respectful of your time. I so appreciate you coming on. Um, before I let you go, is there anything at all you want to plug, anything you want to shout out so we can put it in the show notes? EvolvedTrainingSystems.com. Um, I just dropped the Evolved Full Body Program, which has had a significantly stronger response than I expected. Um, so it's a, a three times a week full body program kind of based in some of the philosophy of the way that I used to train in those early days before I found CrossFit. Um, so there's three training days and then there's two optional days. So there is a five day a week program on there if, if people are interested, but uh, full body program is super dope and the power building cycles are live and involved. And, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Brian Borstein or at Evolve Training Systems. And um, it's been super cool talking to you, dude. I love these, uh, I love these little scientific kind of rabbit holes that we can go down and um, the nuances of the different aspects of programming. It's super cool. Yeah, dude. This has been super fun. We'll have to do it again. Thank you so much for coming on again, my man. Hi, right, bro. Take care. Take care.